papermen meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. The Media Project gives you a half hour of commentary and analysis and in our best times insight into what's going on in the media these days. And we welcome you to follow along with us. I'm Rex Smith here with Judy Patrick, Barbara Lombardo and Ira Fussfeld, veteran journalists all. Just a quick question for the panel here. Anybody ever make up anything that you get published? Absolutely no way. Dead silence. Okay. We We would be long fired if we did. Well, you may not have been fired but you'd know in your heart that you did wrong. Well, I guess that's possible if somebody didn't catch you, but now we have Tarissa Thompson. She is a Fox Sports and Amazon Prime Video host on Thursday Night Football. She's a sideline reporter, and you've probably heard about this, folks. Speaking on a podcast, she said that she fabricated reports. She said, I would sometimes make up the report because the coach wouldn't come out at halftime or was too late, and I was like, I didn't want to screw up the report, so I was like, I'm just going to make it up. End quote. And then to clarify, wasn't she referring to the past? She had done it in the past. She wasn't doing it in the present, to clarify. Well, she said that. Early in my career, she says, when I worked as a sideline reporter before I transitioned to my current host role. Correct. So she's saying sideline reporters who have a little brief amount of time and a little bit of airtime might make up stuff. My view beyond her situation is that this this is a position that shouldn't exist during a football broadcast. These sideline reporters don't get anything generally that's worth breaking in uh, to the game about if there's an injury or something that really needs to be relayed back up to the game announcers. You can get an intern or a production assistant to do that. But for some reason, and all the networks do it, they want a, they want a person down there on the sideline so they can say we have our ace reporter down there. Uh, more often than not, it's an attractive female. I mean, that's not a that's not a value judgment. It's a fact, and I and I just don't think it adds anything to the broadcast. But the the, the question here, and I've been giving this a lot of thought. Apparently, whatever transgression she committed, she made she did so long ago. As far as we know, we don't know if she's done so, things sooner. Should the fact that this in fact did happen so many years ago or years ago. Uh, mitigate her, what what if anything is going to be done to her as an employee? I, I would argue that the admission of making up stuff is not unlike being found for plagiarism in print. In print. If you're plagiarized, you're fired. You've committed the death penalty. Uh, I think that the same is the this case here, unless the feeling is it happened so many years ago that the statute of limitations is up. What do you think, editors? Yeah, her mea culpa wasn't much of a mea culpa because she took it back saying that it happened a while ago and what I really I really wasn't making it up I was just saying my observation the other thing I like to say I agree with I agree with Ira that these are these are useless 
positions. And I think it was just uh, sports, the sports journalism industry trying to throw a bone to women saying, oh, well, yeah, we have women report. We have them report from the sideline. They never have said anything of value. I mean, I'm no Ian Pickus. I don't watch a lot of uh, sports, <laughs> but uh, uh, I've never found these reports to be useful. I, I, at one point, I thought that maybe the coaches were under contract or had some obligation to talk to the sideline people as part of their contract with the NFL. Uh, it, it's different for each league, but I would not be surprised if they did have it. And, the, and whoever, whatever coach didn't speak to Thompson when this occurred, should have that was probably probably part of his deal hmm what do you think barbara would you have would you say that there's a statute of limitations if you had a reporter who told you that uh, well a few years ago i made stuff up it's a little fuzzy to call it a statute of limitations i would not fire her now for that offense done in the past Mm -hmm. she should have been fired back then and the fact that she wasn't either says that her bosses didn't know or they didn't care what concerns me now is that her bosses still don't seem to care that they haven't come out to say she made mistakes as a rookie we should never have we don't condone this they sh- this should never happen we don't make things up our staff does not make things up and we believe she's learned from the past and beyond that i think that it speaks to a culture that existed and still exists that as ira said that there's attractive young women out there who are trying to make a name for themselves and keep a job and she didn't make it up in her head that she needed to make stuff up she thought that she needed to do that to keep her job so yeah. there's a culture that needs to be addressed well talk so- about the culture is there a sense that there may have been at a time that well it's sports it doesn't matter but in this world sports is so costly these days. These are multi-million dollar contracts uh, per year that uh, are, uh, and there is a lot of money riding on this stuff. Individuals are betting now in sports. And so uh, a sidelines report that is made up could certainly be consequential. Right. But we don't know that it's happening now. Well, and, but we know that it's not just her. From, from Ira that those are not consequential reports. They're just a lot of baloney. And now we know that they're beyond baloney. They were made up baloney. Fake baloney. Well, they, they, fake baloney. <laughs> fake, fake baloney. There's a, there are occasions when there's information that is rightly transmitted through the sideline reporter. My point is you don't need a high-profile sideline reporter to get that information. I think what's what's very important about this case and what makes me lean towards saying we've got to get rid of her because she made up a story in an era when the press is being castigated for so-called fake news. And if you get, have an admission on the part of this and, and or other uh, sideline reporters or anybody that they've made up stuff that just it just uh, underscores in the minds of those who are really already don't trust uh, journalism. Oh, I don't agree. She should never have done it in the first place. It is incredibly disturbing, no matter what cultural influences she might have had, for her to think that it was okay ever, ever to make up a quote. The coaches didn't care, though. Nobody seemed to care. But what about and the listeners? And the listeners? And the listeners didn't know, right? The listeners were relying, but that was before the fact that she's come out and then there was another sidelines reporter who also Aaron said, Andrews said who co-hosts a podcast says and, I've done that too said that last year in a and podcast and who knows no which other ones are mm-hmm. are all nervous now because they did the same thing too to me the important thing is that it's out in the open that she must emphatically say that I would never do that again I shouldn't have done it maybe it wasn't emphatic so, enough but to Iris point if this in this era isn't 
the bar for tolerance, shouldn't it be set lower? That is, shouldn't we be increasingly cracking down on people who uh, fabricate or who uh, even uh, do something less than fabrication? Shouldn't we be even more intense about getting the facts right because journalism is so under attack? Right. And that's now. Care about and if, that's if, now. She's, if she's admitting to having done this before and she comes on the air with a story isn't it reasonable for the listener to say, well, how do I know if that's the truth? If if somebody in my newspaper d does the equivalent of what she did, even though that only it's, it may only be that one person and maybe even only that one time, could you for, could you understand that the readers of the newspaper would say, well, gee, if I, if they're lying about this, what else are they lying about? It puts your whole operation in question. Right. A good portion of the public doesn't trust the media in any case. And right. so to have this be a way that and it's lumped in with the media in general, uh, I think there should be no tolerance for it, really. Uh, I remember even actually as a when I was in, in journalism school, uh, halfway through the year at a Christmas party, one of the young student reporters said that she was making up quotes in the, in, in the articles that she would submit to reporters. You know, we were supposed to be out on the street reporting. And I think most of us were horrified that she was, and she said, well, it doesn't matter. It's just a class assignment. Oh. You know, you oh, teach journalism. That's, that's, a, that's a fail to me. Uh-huh. How, how long did the Washington Post tolerate Janet Cook, and how long did the New York Times uh, tolerate Jason Blair? Which and names, by the way, we know because journalism is intolerant of lying. Right. That's right. As soon as they were found out, they were gone. Right. I think when she first talked about this in an interview, she had no idea that there was going to be blowback. I think she's just yakking about what she used to do. And well, that's not very smart of her. Is not, it? It's not, <laughs> you know, it's not it, very smart. It, it could be she just doesn't consider herself a journalist. Maybe she considers herself an entertainment. It's all, uh, again, from my perspective, the sideline report is such fluff that I always discount it as not real news. But I agree that you can't make stuff up. Uh, well, maybe this will raise the standards then. Maybe right. after this they will have to be journalists so they'll, they'll begin to think of it that way if there's an appropriate reaction on the part of her employers, whether that whether she, her paycheck is Fox Sports or Amazon, um, they ought to pay attention. So we will hope that there's some change as a result of this, but we'll see, folks. It's the Media Project. If you have your thoughts on this, media at wamc.org is how you send us email, which, by the way, a listener, Sandra, wrote in about last week's show featuring Anna Wolf of Mississippi Today, winner of the Pulitzer Prize for Investigative Reporting, who was here in Albany to pick up an award that we call the Nellie Bly Award. And Sandra, our listener, wrote in saying, I always thought this show should feature others and younger people in the media working in different models than traditional media. This week's show was excellent, and the guest was a welcome change. More of that. Thanks. Okay. Thank you, Sandra, for your input. Media at WAMC.org. I'm Rex Smith here with Judy Patrick, Barbara Lombardo, and Ira Fussfeld, the media projectors of the week. Rex, uh, if I may, uh, last week was not one of the weeks that I was on, and I'm only on every other week. But don't feel compelled to put a Pulitzer Prize winner in my chair. <laughs> <laughs> it's not necessary. I know the bar. She wasn't is, in your chair. Oh, well, just, just I, I know the, the bar is raised, but you know. Yeah, yeah. I won't be insulted. That's okay. It's okay. It's a wonderful thing when you see a young person succeeding that I way. I did listen to the show, and I thought it was really interesting and wonderful to have her on. It was inspirational to yeah, see a scrappy reporter and how she talked about how difficult it was for her to track down the story. I mean, she this was big and it took a long time. Mm -hmm. So the commitment of 
her bosses to let it happen mm-hmm. and uh, you know her good sense of justice. One of the difficulties, of course, is that there are so few outlets in the media that, that have the resources to allow reporters to do that depth of reporting. And I want to give you a number here and see what you think. That is $12 billion. Um, that amount of money could do a lot for journalism, couldn't it? That is the number that experts, some researchers say, is uh, what Google and Meta owe publishers for the news that they've been putting on their platforms over the years. You know, the news organizations that we all uh, were a part of, Ira was publisher of the Daily Freeman publications in Kingston, Barbara was executive editor of the Saratogian and the Record in Troy, Judy was editor of the Daily Gazette in Schenectady, and I was editor of the Times Union. And those organizations all had their content picked up by uh, these giants. And now research at Columbia's School of International and Public Affairs says that it's about $10 billion worth of information from Google, $2 billion from Meta that is owed because of the value of that content. So what do you do about that? And, and how can you make up all that's been lost to those giants? There's little you can do. I think they've got their money. They're not giving it back. Um, the idea is that our industry has to reinvent itself going forward. I, I, uh, looking back, we can see the injustice of it all. We can see how we are taking advantage. But what does that do us? What good does that do us today? We need to figure out uh, how to bring the money in, how to uh, make our newsroom stronger and more vibrant and get more people involved. I think uh, it, it, what ha- what happened to us in those early days of the Internet um, was in part our own uh, undoing. And um, uh, we need to be smarter and savvier going forward. Um, we need to try to to wrangle some money out of out of these uh, platforms going forward. Um, what power do we have? We don't have a lot of power because we can't negotiate as a group. Hmm. Isn't all of our material copyrighted? Yes, but uh, we are uh, prohibited from negotiating by federal law on that right. Collectively. Collectively. Yeah. Uh, and so it's, uh, and, and uh, Google and Meta would say that uh, it's not a, a copyright violation, that they are, uh, in fact, uh, providing traffic to the websites of these traditional news organizations. And in an exchange, they're giving us like one one thousandth of a penny for every visit. AI is also bringing up the, you know, we also bring this issue up when we talk about artificial intelligence and them scraping uh, news sites for their um, artificial intelligence reasons. There's, uh, they are saying this fair use. So uh, we've, we've long dealt with that issue unsuccessfully. See, I, uh, you, you said, I believe you used your phrase, part of our, it was partly our industry's fault when, with regard to the internet and the onset of the internet. I think it was much more than just partly. I don't think that we, and I've said this before here and elsewhere, we, we were not prepared for the internet. We were not prepared for uh, when Craigslist came in and stole our classified advertising, which we had sold. That was a, such a cash cow that it was only ours, and 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 it was stolen from under our noses because we just weren't aware of it, and or we didn't we didn't realize the long term impact it was going to have. And then when when other companies started posting material online, the newspaper industry scrambled around to post stuff, and they posted it without a paywall. 
it was just all willy-nilly. All they were interested in was being online. You, you, we, we felt like, oh, we, we had to have a presence online, so let's throw some stuff online. There are just so many ways that are that I can articulate when I have when I have more time. But I think that that we we shot ourselves in the feet at the onset of the digital revolution, and we've never caught up. I totally I totally agree with you, Ira. I do have a question on uh, from your perspective as a publisher and familiarity working for chains is what if and working at relatively small papers. What effect would the money that Google I think owes? the news providers, what effect would that have on papers uh, de- like the de- Saratogian, the Kingston you know, Freeman? It all depends on the owners of the papers we, who, who either might say, okay, here's X number of dollars, go hire yourself some reporters, or more likely they say, here's some here's some money, we need it to uh, do whatever it is we but do But how could we profit. justify that the money is due to our news entities? To the newsrooms, you mean? To the, the newsrooms. The, the generators like, what are we providing, what mm-hmm. are we providing that... Google is using it is content, and so uh, oh, I I, I, I know the content, oh. but we're not providing that much content. No, the smaller papers don't deserve to get oh. a good big chunk of the uh, revenue that may be out there. But whatever we get is better. It, it, it's better than what we're getting now, which is nothing. Now, what we'll do with it, or what would be done with it, I mean, the cynic in me would say it'll just go right to the corporate, and we'll never see it. You know, it's it's interesting, Ira, to hear you say about uh, how we missed the boat. I, I wonder, this notion that, of course, we're looking at history, but the notion that we should have immediately started charging for content. Uh, now we put uh, content behind paywalls, uh, usually after people get a bit of a taste of it. Maybe they get a couple of articles a month or something. But at the beginning of the uh, the dawn of the Internet age, uh, when newspapers were just uh, ink on crushed trees, wasn't it important to begin to build uh, an expectation of digital audience? Uh, and that's why I think yeah, content was but, given well, away. What, what, and it ultimately went to a paywall, as you, as you described. And, and that, that, was not, that was not in anybody's head back then. The, the thinking was the only paper that could charge for content was the Wall Street Journal. At the time, it was way ahead of everybody else. It had much better content, and it had unique content. Well, and people but, paid for it with their office expense accounts. Well, that's that's a business thing. community. That's well, Part of the problem with the news people or news organizations is that they were thinking that people are going to newspapers primarily or, or mostly or only for news. And that's where uh, Ira hit the nail on the head about Craigslist. So. Yeah. People who used to look in newspapers for the classified ads—that's and 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 the uh, display ads—we should have we in the news in the news industry should have been jumping on that first, and that would have helped our business model. Just to give the listeners a, a, a comparison, in my newspaper's case, a cir- on a Sunday circulation of thirty thousand, we used to have upwards of twenty pages of classified ads every wow. every Sunday. Now, that included the automotive ads, but 20 pages. Now, if you have two full pages of classified ads, it's a lot. And all of that was revenue. There was nothing on that page of those 20 pages that was not being paid for. Can you imagine withdrawing that much content and that much revenue and expect to be surviving? And preprints, that is the circulars that were distributed in the Sunday primarily paper and Thursday, those uh, also have Thank goodness for Boscovs. I think they might still be keeping the Times <laughs> Union afloat. <laughs> it could yeah. be. <laughs> I, I remember when I remember when H and M. No, was it? It was the H and M or Filene. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Filene's. I think when they were coming into Kingston in the mid early eighties, they used to run full page ads to build up their to their arrival. I mean, page after page after, and then all of a sudden that kind of advertising went away. 
You know, can I mention that we're recording this on Thanksgiving week, which is traditionally the biggest week of the year for print newspapers. And I, I reached out to the newspapers that are members of the New York Press Association to get a sense of how big their papers are this year. Because uh, what happens is they get insert upon insert upon insert, and you get these mega papers that weigh pounds. And mm-hmm. uh, um, and, and guess what? That's still happening. Uh, you're still seeing uh, the Times Union, Rex's old paper, um, has a special thing where you drive up and you get the, the paper. You will still see inserts um that tradition um, carries on for the, uh, this day, but uh, uh, traditionally, yeah. you know, the paper is a lot thinner than it the used to be. The paper is a lot thinner, yeah. so that that ad, that sun, that Thursday paper, Thanksgiving Day, still might have a lot of those inserts, but the number of pages in the paper has dwindled. So I think that speaks to the advertising department's ability to convince the advertisers that there is still value in receiving that day's paper. Hmm. Well, good luck. Uh, the fact is, the result of this, uh, as we mentioned, I think, last week, a new Medill study finds that the U.S. has lost more than two newspapers a week this year. Uh, that is, mostly smaller papers. Most of them are... Uh, are weeklies that are that are dying at this point. That, but since 2005, the United States has lost nearly 2,900 newspapers. 43,000 journalists uh, have lost their jobs in the last 19, uh, 18 years. Uh, so um, that is, and there's been some growth in these uh, digital-only outlets, like we were talking about Anna Wolf, her uh, outlet uh, Mississippi Today, uh, of course, has a, a staff of uh, a thriving staff of about 20 some i believe you know what surprises me about the fact that most of the papers that are closing are weeklies is that the weeklies in my view still had a unique place in small communities that the content the content that the weeklies had was not content that even some of the smaller dailies would have and that you were and that you would think that everybody in a small community would want still want that weekly newspaper because it would you, you're not getting that information digitally generally speaking maybe you I, want to talk to Ralph Nader about that well i saw <laughs> Ralph, yes, that's actually news this week. Uh, Ralph Nader, uh, there was a small paper in Connecticut, in Winstead, Connecticut, that Ralph Nader notably invested in with some hoopla, which uh, has now failed to uh, meet payroll and is is closing. It was only, it wasn't even a weekly, was it? Uh, It was even a monthly. monthly, You know, can I talk a little bit about the Medill study? Mm -hmm. Um, Because I I took a deep dive into it because uh, I wanted to, I, I actually wanted to write about it and, and get a sense of what the data, where the data was coming from. And and I think we all need to take, as journalists, we need to all take a hard look at the data. For example, it's saying that there um, there's only one newspaper in my county, uh, Washington County and Upstate New York, when in fact there are there are three. Uh, it says there only there's only one paper that covers Schenectady County, when I know the Albany Times Union and the Daily Gazette and Schenectady both cover. Only one paper in Saratoga. Uh, and when there is a very vibrant competition for news, so Absolutely. I think what they consider, um, how, what their basic, the, what their premise is when they uh, attack this story uh, um, and attack this issue is an important one for us to keep in mind. There, uh, there are a lot of papers out there. We are not a dying industry. We, w- there are survivors out there, and um, we we need to take a, a harder look at the data before we just uh, embrace the idea that the the, the, the industry is dying. That's a good point. Uh, one of the, the aspects, though, that still is is troubling in that is the places where there are still 
banners. That is, there's a, a nameplate uh, of a, but there are no, there's no journalism being done there. There are at least 36 markets this uh, research found where there are papers owned by Gannett and Lee Enterprises. Lee, for example, owns the Post Star in Glens Falls. Uh, markets where there's not a single local journalist on staff in some of those markets. Uh, I believe there's one reporter now in Poughkeepsie, which is a Gannett uh, property. Now, I don't, I'll go back to what Judy was saying, where I'm, the news for journalism overall is not great. But uh, I looked at that story um, with skepticism, and I'm glad that you're pointing those things out. When they say there's no reporters listed on the staff, um, I could take the Saratogian, for example, they have less than a handful of reporters, but they do have reporters. They unfortunately don't have a uh, brick-and-mortar site, and they are. And it's true that they're not listed. Their bylines are listed when they write a story. Their bylines are are included in the print and online stories. Hmm. So it's. It made me think that this is not. There's. You think there are holes in the data? Yes, there's holes. Kingston still has several reporters. They're not listed you, somewhere. Yeah, and and uh, I find it hard to believe that Poughkeepsie only has one. Well, it uh, depends on how you cite it. Uh, you know, because there are reporters from outside Poughkeepsie who would say they're covering it. Just the same way that, uh, you know, when I was the editor of the record in Troy, we had a Mechanicville bureau. <laughs> and I think Troy would still say they cover Mechanicville, but they do it with, uh, you know, a partial part of a reporter from Troy. Anyway, we're we're out of time here. We've been wow. talking about these tough issues, and uh, but there is uh, it is important for us to try to be accurate about this. So thank you for uh, these thoughts about this research. Barbara Lombardo and Judy Patrick and Ira Fussfeld uh, brought you that. I'm Rex Smith. We have gratitude for our producer, David Gustina, and to you folks for joining us once again this week on The Media Project. Startled poor old Sadie's on ting-a-ling-a-ling, city desk. Hold the press, hold the press, extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. All newspapermen meet such interesting people. Like the richest girl who could not bake a cake. Tingling, 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 tingling. Now, newspapermen are such interesting people. They used to work like hell just for romance. But finally, the movie's notwithstanding. The Media Project is a national production of WAMC, Northeast Public Radio. This week's projectors include former Times Union editor and current Substack columnist of the Upstate American, Rex Smith, Judy Patrick, former editor of the Daily Gazette and vice president for editorial development for the New York Press Association, Barbara Lombardo, the former editor of the Saratogian and a journalism professor at the University at Albany, and Ira Fussfeld, publisher emeritus of the Daily Freeman. You can listen to The Media Project anytime at wamcpodcast.org or anywhere you get your podcast. I'm your producer, David Gustina. Thanks for listening. Publishers are such interesting people. Their policy is an acrobatic thing. They claim to represent the common people. Funny Wall Street never has complained. Ah, but publishers have worries, for publishers must go to working folks for readers and to big shots for their dough. Now publishers are such interesting people. It could be prostitution, I don't know. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, circulation, ting-a-ling-a-ling, advertising, get those readers, get that payoff. What a headache, what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press.